podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is special guest, senior reporter Jack Karp. Jack, welcome. Hey, Natalie. Thanks for having me. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. So is this your first time on the term? I know you've been on Pro Se, our sister publication before, right? Yes, but this is my first time on the term. I'm very excited about it. As am I. Uh, so for listeners who don't know, uh, Jack is our senior reporter for our Pulse Wires. He is often doing deep dives into fascinating litigation that's rumbling around the lower courts. And he writes up a regular data breakdown of Supreme Court oral arguments. So this week, which is hopefully, we think, <laughs> our last episode of the year. Um, I don't want to make any promises because the Supreme Court does like to surprise us. But uh, we are taking a... a some time to take a step back and uh, kind of look into how the term has been going. And Jack's going to fill us in on some of the most interesting uh, data tidbits he's been gleaning from uh, the last few months. Before we get into that, though, uh, just a few quick updates uh, from the Supreme Court docket. Um, I think it's no surprise that, you know, these updates are on the two fronts we've been watching often with, with the court this term, which are uh, abortion laws and vaccine mandates. Jack, I, I feel uh, you'll agree with me. Those have been two very hot topics for, for the court this term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they are topics that a lot of people are paying attention to. So first up, uh, I think the one that we should talk about is Holman's Health, uh, the case surrounding the implementation of Texas's SB8 abortion law um, and, and basically how that law was structured and who could sue over it, uh, right? This has been a, a case we've been highly watching. So we actually got an opinion last week um, and the court basically blocked the Biden administration from suing, but gave a narrow win to providers and clinics such as Whole Women's Health to pursue pre-enforcement challenges against certain of the named defendants, but not others. Uh, today, Thursday, we got another update. Uh, because there was actually an order that is continuing to basically fast track this case, right? So the opinion essentially put everything back to the lower courts. Um, but there's actually a kind of formal 25-day delay usually when there's a remand to a district court. Um, so essentially, today's order from Justice Gorsuch said, okay, yes, we can skip the 25 days. You get this like formal issued judgment and remand. Um, although the Justice Gorsuch did remand the matter uh, straight to the Fifth Circuit and not the district court as the providers had requested. So it's just still kind of a, a mixed bag for um, whole women's health in terms of like, you know, not a complete win, right, Jack? Absolutely. And, and I do think that um, Justice Gorsuch's decision to send it to the Fifth Circuit as opposed to district court does tip his hand a little bit, um, in part because um, when the case was originally before the district court um, in front of Judge Pittman, I believe, he actually did um, want to enjoin the law from going into effect. And then that was appealed up to the Fifth Circuit, which chose to allow the law to go into effect. So I think the the fact that the case is being sent back to the Fifth Circuit as opposed to back to district court might be a might be a hint that Justice Gorsuch and maybe some of the other justices on the court don't want to see the law enjoined. That's right. 
Um, and, and so moving on to another of this week's uh, docket updates, also on a, a, a matter that tends to divide the justices. <laughs> uh, this one's on vaccine mandates. The court voted uh, six to three on Monday to not block New York State's COVID-19 vaccine requirement for healthcare workers. Um, Jack, I know you've been you've been watching uh, some of these COVID cases yourself. Uh, how do you think this fits in with the con- in terms of context of other vaccine mandates and the court's kind of decisions? Um, well, this decision is uh, pretty consistent with the decision they made uh, a little while ago, um, also allowing Maine to. Maine's vaccine mandates to uh, to stand as well. Um, so as far as the Supreme Court goes, it's pretty consistent. Um, uh, as far as the lower courts go, it's been a really mixed bag. Um, on a state-by-state basis, I think for the most part, um, challengers to the vaccine mandates have been losing. Um, but I believe, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the federal mandate that President Biden tried to implement is on hold right now. Um, by by at least one court. So I would say it's 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 consistent for the Supreme Court, but as all the courts go, the whole nothing is consistent about any of these decisions. It's, <laughs> it's just a, it's just a mess right now. Yeah, it's definitely a a fast moving landscape. I feel it feels like trying to keep track of water waves or something like that when it comes to trying to keep track of all the COVID vax mandate. Uh, litigation. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I do think also, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch was pretty clear um, in his um, disagreement with this decision. Um, there's there's a there's definitely a growing block on the court led by Justice Gorsuch of justices who who do think that these mandates are unconstitutional because they violate religious freedom. And it'll be interesting to see going forward if that block grows enough to start overturning any of these, which, you know, may or may not happen over the course of the term. Definitely. What to watch um, as we head into 2022. Yes. Uh, which is hard to hard to believe. It's, it's already, <laughs> you know, going to be the new year. Um, so I think this is a good time. You know, as always, it's nice to kind of take a look back. Um, when it comes to the Supreme Court, obviously we're not looking back on a full year. Uh, the term started in October. But Jack, you've been kind of uh, keeping track of these weekly data uh, sets related to oral arguments and to the Supreme Court in general. And so, I, I, you know, I'm curious to hear kind of like, what are you seeing? What what trends are already starting to develop this term? Um, well, um, I don't know if this is a new trend, but definitely as far as oral arguments go, um, Justices Kagan and Breyer are definitely taking the lead. Um, they've they've been the most loquacious um, of the <laughs> justices during this term. I don't know that that's actually a new development. Um, I think Justice Breyer is usually the the most talkative justice. Um, well, he does like his anecdotes, right? And he his really does. He he yeah. likes positing um, hypotheticals, <laughs> and he also likes. I've noticed he really enjoys admitting that he doesn't know what he's talking about. He has a, I don't think he doesn't know. I think he does know. But he he, he is fond of, of of saying to the lawyers arguing, I don't know anything about this, but I I want you to tell me. Um I think that, that that seems to be one of his trademarks, at least this term. Well I can I can respect that approach because yes. I often will take the I'm not fully sure, <laughs> but yeah. let's have a chat uh, <laughs> take. Um, 
so so that's on one end of the spectrum. How about the least talkative? I I, um, I know things have changed a bit in, when it comes to Justice Thomas, who we you know have gone certain terms without hearing a word out of him. But uh, I'm assuming he's still towards that end of the spectrum, if not you know at yes. zero. Yes, <laughs> he's he's definitely still the least talkative justice, I think. But you're right, he he did um, kind of finally pipe up, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it this term in a way that he hasn't before. I think at least some of, if not all of that is due to the new format that the justices implemented at the beginning of the term, where instead of just this big free-for-all, they kind of have a round robin where they go in order of seniority. And there's a, there's a, there's an option for like extra questioning. If, if justices want to have extra questioning at the end. And if I'm not mistaken, I think at least in the first oral arguments in which they use that, new format, um, Justice Thomas went first in all of the arguments in that week. So he definitely seems a lot more comfortable with this format, which might be why he's participating more. And obviously, this is kind of a bit of a hybrid format that yeah. we've seen that, that kind of mixes, you know, the the kind of each take a turn uh, pace that the justices took while they were on teleconference essentially right. um, last term because of the pandemic. Um, but it also mixes in a, a bit of that free for all that we're all so used to, uh, you know, historically uh, when it comes to oral arguments, um, you know, especially in those moments where we, we've seen kind of more of that traditional free for all or, or, or just, you know, more uh, kind of uh, streaming consciousness of, of of arguments where have we seen the justices kind of be most talkative what would have been some of the cases i know this has been a blockbuster yes uh, a couple of yes. weeks already <laughs> and i would say you know probably not a surprise to most of our listeners you know the the blockbuster cases are the ones that have seemed to engender the the most arguments you know obviously the dobbs v jackson women's health which is the the case over mississippi's abortion restriction um the new york state rifle and pistol association v brune which is the case about um the uh, restriction on carrying concealed weapons in new york state um and another one that i think has flown under the radar a little bit more um is carson v macon um, which is a case in Maine about um, whether or not public funds can go to religious schools. Um, and that I don't think has gotten as much attention as, you know, the the abortion related cases in the gun case. But that I think is is also a pretty significant case in terms of the, the spate of religious freedom cases that the court seems to be taken up. And there were um, there were definitely some very um, active arguments um during that case. Yeah, I know we spoke just recently, actually, about Carson v. Macon. Um, I remember distinctly, Justice Kagan seemed to, to have a lot to say. What? Who else kind of like was 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 uh, kind of coming to the fore in terms of your data points? Um, well, in addition to Justice Kagan, definitely Justice Breyer, which, again, not a surprise. Um, but he had a lot to say. Um, in, ter- in terms of the vast number of religions in, in America, he definitely, he made that point pretty consistently that there's, you know, over 65 or 70 religions and they all believe different things. And if we allow, you know, public funds to start going to all of these religious schools, 
you're going to be pulling the states into these religious arguments between different religions. So he had a lot to say. Um, and I'd say Justice Kavanaugh also seemed to have a good amount to say about um, basically is choosing not to fund religious schools a form of discrimination you know, against religion. Um, that seemed to be kind of a largely his take on the issue. So I would say those three justices probably had the most to say during those particular arguments. So I know we like to look at the justices, uh, but we also like to look at the advocates, right? Um, and one area that we, that Jack, I've noticed you kind of uh, every so often take a look at is the gender breakdown of the advocates. Um, I'd like to say it's getting better, but it does not seem to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, unfortunately, I think you're right. Um, I, you know, having looked at all the oral arguments that have happened so far this term, um, by my count, and math is not my strong suit, so take this for a grain of salt, but by my count, um... You do the data story every week. (laughs) (laughs) Jack, I don't think you should be admitting to that. (laughs) All right, I I won't admit it in public. Um, so yeah, so by my count, um, in the, in the, the, the portion of the term that's taken place so far, men have made, um, 53 appearances before the justices so far, while women have made only 17. Um, and so that comes out to about 24% of the, of the appearances have been by, by women advocates as opposed to male advocates, which I think it may be slight, very, very slightly better than the average for last term, which I, I, I feel like was somewhere around 20%, but it's obviously not that much of a difference. Do you guys count by appearance or by, like, like the one time the advocate comes in for the term? Because obviously, you know, now we have the new Solicitor General, right. Elizabeth Prelogger. Uh, I know she just made her first appearance dur- during arguments over the Texas abortion law, but um, hopefully we'll be seeing much more for this term. Yes. And that, that's a very good question. And yes, so I'm, I'm definitely counting appearances as opposed to individuals. So that's, you know, 53 appearances by male advocates. Definitely some of those appearances were made by the same attorney. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Elizabeth Prelogger. Um, she did make her first appearance in front of the court this term in the arguments, um, USV Texas, which are over Texas's SB8. Um, one of the, you know, little tidbits of trivia I found interesting is she is only the second woman to hold the position of Solicitor General, um, in the United States government and the first person and only other person to hold that role as a woman is Justice Elena Kagan. So that was, that's a little interesting tidbit of having the second woman to hold that, that position arguing before the woman who was the first woman to hold that position. Yeah, it has to be an interesting dynamic. Um, so taking another uh, step back, you know, in, in terms of the advocates and who's been arguing, uh, can we talk about who's popped up more than once? Um, you know, I know it's so, it's so monumentous, right, for any attorney almost uh, to, to get a Supreme Court argument. But we also see a couple... Who, who show up uh, more than once? And, and, and what have we been seeing this term in terms of like, you know, kind of who's making repeat performances? Absolutely. Well, um, definitely Solicitor General Prelogger is, um, has made a couple of appearances and, and um, not necessarily surprisingly, I, I believe at least two, if not all of her appearances at this point have been in abortion related cases. In addition to the arguments over Texas's SB8, she also argued in the, in the, Dobbs case over Mississippi's abortion restriction. Um, 
Another attorney who's had um, multiple appearances before the court this term is Kanan Shanmugam, who has who's made a couple of appearances, um, and then um, this another one more attorney who I've seen um, popping up in um, arguments a lot, and this may be a f- function of all the cases coming out of Texas, has been Judge Stone, who is the Solicitor General of Texas. He's argued in front of the court. Um, on a few occasions, including in the arguments over whole women's health and the Texas abortion restriction. Um, so those are the three that I'm seeing a lot. Um, Paul Clement, as usual, um, made an appearance this term as well, but I think he's only appeared once so far this term. So that's pretty impressive, especially considering that this term, I feel like there's not as many as many opportunities for advocates to to come up before the justices. Now, I might be wrong, and, and you please correct me <laughs> if I am, but it seems like we've been seeing less cases, obviously hi- higher profile cases, right. but less overall this term being accepted. I, I think you're right about that. Um, so, so far, the court has agreed to hear 49 cases this term, um, and 28 of them have, have been argued. Um, and that is fewer petitions that have been granted at this point in a term compared to any of the last five terms. The justices right now are on a slower trajectory in terms of granting cert petitions than they have been at any point, at least in the last five terms. Um, although strangely, um, they seem to be issuing their decisions at a slightly faster pace, which, you know, it, I don't know how meaningful this is since they've only issued three decisions so far this term. Um, but they have issued their, those decisions more quickly than they have in the past. But, and, but, um, and one of them was the Texas SB8 case. Right. Which exactly. Was which was an expedited, expedited opinion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I will say, you know, um, experts I, I have spoken to, you know, over the last, you know, six months a year covering the Supreme Court and, and various other um, litigation, pretty much everybody agrees that the Supreme Court is taking fewer and fewer cases each year and that they are now taking and hearing fewer cases than they were, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So it feels a lot of ways like it's already been a sprint in terms of the cases, right? We, we've seen, again, so many just like very big ticket cases at the, at the very start of the term. But what can you tell us about the cases that remain? What What's kind of on your radar? Gotcha. Um, well, there's definitely a, at least one other big religious freedom case, um, which is Shirtleff v. Boston, um, which is uh, arguments over whether or not it violates the First Amendment um, when um, Boston barred a, relig- a private religious organization from flying its flag in the city center. Um um, there is an interesting First Amendment case um, involving a, a bed and breakfast owner who was physically attacked by a Customs and Border Patrol agent and, and filed a complaint um, and is accusing the agent now of retaliation because the agent apparently then tried to get that bed and breakfast owner investigated by the IRS. Um, and so that's an interesting case over whether or not the agent's behavior you know, violates the First Amendment. And then there's a couple of cases I've been watching um, because they're they're very related that seem interesting. There's a couple of cases, one in um, North Carolina and one in Arizona, over whether or not um, Republican legislators can step in to defend 
laws that other officials, usually Democratic officials, have chosen not to defend. Um, so um, in um, North Carolina, for instance, Republican legislators want to intervene to defend the state's photo ID voting requirement. Um, and the Fourth Circuit has already told them no, because the state's attorney general, who is a Democrat, is is adequately def- defending the voter ID law. Um, and then in Arizona, um, a group of Republican states want to defend the Trump immigration policy, but that the Biden administration has already declined to defend. Um, and I, one of the reasons I think those two cases are interesting is because they echo another case that the justices have already heard arguments in this session, which is Cameron v. EMW Women's Surgical Center. Um, and the situation in that one was that a Republican state attorney general wanted to intervene to defend the state abortion restriction after another state official, I believe it was the, the health department head, who is a Democrat, declined to defend the law. So that makes three cases of this term, at least that we know of so far, that the justices are, have chosen to hear involving situations where Republican legislators, Republican attorneys general want to defend a law that Democratic officials have already declined to defend. And which are tied basically to administration changes, right, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I'm, it's not entirely surprising that this happens when you have, you know, shifts in the administration from, you know, like, say, the Trump administration to the Biden administration. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested in and curious about, like, why the, the justices have chosen to take three cases that are, you know, not all the exact same issue, but clearly address this particular issue, you know, in this term. Um, especially given, you know, some of the other cases that they've taken this term, which are very politically charged. Um, so I'm just kind of curious to see how those cases are going to are going to come down and if the justices are going to make you know similar decisions in all three cases when their decisions do finally come out. I'm with you on watching these cases uh, and interested to see how they pan out and also interested to see because obviously, I, I you know, as we kind of should give the caveat that the justices can still take up more cases. Um, and we've actually seen them uh, take up, a, you know, a few in the last few weeks. Um, so it's possible they will load up the docket <laughs> and prove us all wrong about having a light docket um, <laughs> at the end of the year. I personally don't expect that too much, but you never know. Um, Jack, this has been wonderful. Uh, and I think this has uh, been a very helpful kind of look back and look ahead Um which feels just right for this probably being our last episode for 2021. It has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. I hope I get to come back and do it again. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and special guest hosts, Jack Carp. We'd also like to thank contributing reporter Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high card action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please leave us a review.